Welcome to the Nopalera podcast, a place where I share the journey of building my company from the ground up, as well as the stories of others in our community. I am your host, Sandra Velasquez, founder of Nopalera, a culture-forward brand that celebrates and elevates culture. Aside from making great products, we are cultural storytellers with a mission to inspire our community to stand in their worth. In this podcast, you will hear a mix of solo and guest episodes around the entrepreneurial realities of building a company. I launched Nopalera from my Brooklyn apartment with no outside funding while working three jobs, raising my child in the middle of the pandemic at the age of 44. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope it inspires you to live boldly. Yeah, it's a great question that I think a lot of founders... We obviously have followed your story from day one. But it really is helping our own brands when we're helping other brands. This year, you are going to hear a new series of conversations where I provide live mentorship to other entrepreneurs in our community. One of our core values at Nopalera is courage is contagious. I created this podcast as an extension of these values to provide access, transparency, and therefore inspire others, and I'm talking to you, live their best lives while building. Between the ages of 20 and 40, I wished for a mentor, and I never really found one until a few years ago. So as they say, become what you wished you had. In part two of our mentorship series, I am talking to Melissa Gallardo and Cindy Convery. Melissa is the founder of Bonita Fierce Candles, a candle brand that honors her Latin roots. And Cindy is the founder of Pure Wild Co., a clean marine collagen drink brand. We're going to be talking about vetting retail partners, talking to investors, and channel strategy. Nowadays, it's like we need people to keep it real. To keep it real. To keep it real. Hey, Melissa, welcome to the Nopalera podcast. It's so good to see you. It's so great to see you, Sandra. I'm so excited to be here. So you have some questions for me, and I'd love to hear them and have a conversation about where you're at and how it can potentially help you overcome anything that you are currently facing. So why don't you go ahead and kick it off? What kind of questions are you asking yourself and retail buyers in your approach to mass market and beauty retail? Such a great question. And by the way, I love this question because you're asking what questions should you be asking them? Because most people are asking what questions are they going to ask me? And I love that we also get to ask the questions. So we also get to determine whether this is a good fit for us because not every retailer is a good fit, right? So I would always ask them about the category, like specifically the category. So let's take, you know, Macy's, for example, Macy's sells clothes, they sell candles, they sell makeup, they sell bath and body products, skincare. So specific to your category, what do they see happening in that category? What are the trends? Is it clean fragrance? Is it this kind of fragrance? Is it this kind of vessel or whatever? So what are the trends in your category to really understand what's working? And do they see the the sales happening more online or in store? I think is very interesting because I feel like a lot of retailers are not necessarily forthcoming with the fact that most sales are happening online and the store is almost like a showroom. I mean, I shop online, right? Like I can't remember the last time I went into a department store to buy stuff, you know? I totally agree. So I think asking them those questions about the performance of the category, where the sales are coming from, also asking them like, who are the top leaders of the category? Because that will kind of give you an idea of like the type of consumer, like the type of person that's shopping there. You know, like when I went through the Target Accelerator, they told me that Tree Hut was one of their best selling body scrubs. And I was like, that's good to know <laughs> because Tree Hut to me, it's like so mass, right? It's like an $8, $9 body scrub. It comes like in a plastic bottle. Like there's not really a brand. 
you know, so it tells me it's more like a utilitarian purchase. It's not someone that's like, let me buy this thing because it's beautiful and it makes me feel something, right? That's not why they're buying it. So that gives me insight into what the consumers are shopping for. So I think those kinds of metrics, as many metrics as you can get from a retailer, I think is really helpful for you to make a decision whether this is the right partnership for you. What kind of metrics are you looking for? So all of those, like the category, the trends, like where are the sales coming from? What are their top sellers? Like in a category like mine, I'm looking at like, is body oil selling? Is body lotion selling? What are the leaders? Those types of things I'm trying to understand because they have the insights, because they have the data of their own sales. And that can be really insightful to you as a brand. Like right now, clean fragrance is a trend, you know? Yes. So is that where this retailer is seeing the trends as well? Because maybe the people that shop at whatever store you're talking to, they're outside of that. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they're still buying like paraffin, wax, pine scented candles. You know what I mean? (laughs) So absolutely. What did you want to make sure you're finding in investors and then finding in the long run, like what that exit strategy is going to look like? Because this is something I struggle with in business. If I'm going to be those three options, rather you are going to be a family owned business, Mm -hmm. you are going to raise or you're going out of business. (laughs) There's only so many options you can do when you're running a business. It's so true. It's so true. And I love how you outlined that. So I think the main thing, if you're going to go raise outside capital from people that are initially strangers, you want to understand you're entering into a long-term partnership. Like, do you want to marry these people? And it's not just about the money that they're bringing to the table. And I know, I remember that feeling of like, wow, I could just use money. Any money would be great. And so it feels odd to turn money down if someone wants to give it to you. But you do have to ask yourself, like, is this the right person? Do I want to talk to this person every day, every month for the next five years? Ask yourself that question. And also, what else are they bringing to the table? Because it can't just be the money. Or if it is just going to be the money, then what else are you giving up aside from equity? Like, are you giving up a board seat? So for example, I have angel investors. I don't necessarily have to talk to any of them. I'm not required. I give them updates because I want to, but it's really the lead investor that I, I had to give up a board seat. I have to meet with them and present numbers to them quarterly. You know, So that comes with the territory of having someone write you a $2 million check. But I think it's just key asking yourself, like, is this person bringing resources to the table that can help you scale? Ideally, they're bringing you relationships, resources, right? Maybe they know other candle manufacturers that can help you lower your cogs. They can help you to hire people. They can help you with anything that you need, right? So I think it always starts with you identifying what you need. And then then you match that with the people. Like, do they have the thing that you need aside from the money? And so, and I guess in terms of the exit strategy... You know, once you take institutional capital, if someone's writing you a $2 million check, unless it's like an angel, these people want a return on their investment, meaning like you have to exit at some point. So they're not trying to fund, you know, to your point, a family business. And so really it's about getting on the same page with them in terms of like, what does that growth trajectory look like? What does that roadmap look like? I recently read an article about, um, I think it was on LinkedIn. Someone posted it. I didn't actually know this, but Daniel Lubetsky bought his company back from his first investors because when they invested in him initially, they made a deal that he would sell a company within like, I don't know, I don't want to get it wrong, but I think maybe like four years or something. And when that time came, he realized he didn't want to sell it. It wasn't time yet. So he bought the shares back. Wow. And then ended up going and the company was valued a lot more. So it worked out. Obviously, that sounds like a really stressful situation. He had to go like find $20 million. (laughs) So my point is, right, if you're going to take on this money, 
make sure that they're not like, yeah, and we want to make sure that you sell within three years. And you're like, well, I think it's going to take me longer to build this company to the revenue goal that I think and to its fullest potential. So those types of conversations, so they're not thinking that you're going to sell your company in three years and you think it's going to take 10. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that I do struggle with is those financial projections Mm -hmm. and being able to see like, okay, like maybe I'll make $250,000 this year. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, how am I going to get there based on the kinds of consumers I have, the relationships with independent boutiques Mm -hmm. and retailers and, you know, Nordstrom for me and mass market. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to get through not even just every quarter, but yearly, what are you looking at? in order to get those financial projections so you can hit your, eventually your exit strategy. Yeah. So when you want to identify like all your levers, what are the levers that you can pull like every month, every quarter, every year to get you to like the next milestone? So for you, like, is it another retailer? Is it that you need to make more SKUs? Is it that you need to invest more in marketing? Is it that you need to start an ambassador program? So all of these things, I think of them like literally in my mind, I'm very visual. Like I picture them like levers that you can pull and identifying what those are is the first step. Like what are all of your levers? You know, otherwise you feel like you're just treading water. You're like, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how I get from here to there. So identifying all of your levers And then looking at like, what are the things you can do now? Like what levers can you pull right now? What levers require more money? And so that was a thing for me, for example, because I was always bootstrapped and I just didn't have the money to have like a robust marketing budget. It was always very shoestring. And so now with investment, we're able to have like an actual marketing budget where we can say, we're going to spend this much on ads. We're going to spend this much on blog writers, this much on like billboards, this much on whatever. And we have it all itemized. And so our marketing budget is like its own sheet, you know, that is connected to our financial model. But in the beginning, when you're bootstrapped, it's like, what do you have? You have email marketing, you have word of mouth. Are you going to do pop-up events? Are you going to do a collaboration with someone else that can help bring visibility to your brand? You know, so those types of things. So I think identifying all the levers and then, you know, in terms of forecasting, you have a a product that like lasts for a while. Like you don't sell like, I don't know, body wash or something, right? It runs out quickly. Like candles last for a while, right? So understanding like your repeat purchase rate, like how long from the time someone buys their first candle until they buy their next candle and really understanding that for your product category. And that also tells you like, okay, I need to bring in this many new people every month so that I can continue to hit like this revenue goal because the first round of people are still burning the candle that they bought two months ago. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it requires really, and this is also a thing with fundraising is like, you need to dig into all, you need to know like your business, like inside and out, you know, like how much does the customer spend? Like what's their lifetime value? What's the repeat purchase rate? When someone buys from you once, are they coming back twice, once, zero? People need to know those things. You need to know those things so that you can make decisions about, okay, I need to bring in new people or I need to look at some other levers that I can pull. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And kind of like that transition from bootstrapping to being able to have that full-blown marketing budget, what were some of the things that you started to invest in once you figured out some of your levers? So like, obviously like email marketing is supposed to bring in like between 30 and 40% of your sales already. Like, how are you like pulling those things? I know you've mentioned ads and Mm -hmm. an ambassador program. So like, what are some of the things that you started to invest in that you're able to show your investors, hey, this is what's bringing us money. Mm -hmm. And kind of like a part two to that question, when raising, one thing I've kind of learned over the last few months is that 
you can't just say paid ads and, you know, social media market. Like there kind of needs to be something else in order to be able to have this differentiation. Like it doesn't just work those two things anymore. So what are the, some of the things that you're in leaning on now? Yeah. So we lean on a lot of things. We don't put all of our eggs in one basket. And actually we never really did. It's just that everything was like super shoestring, right? So Clavio costs money. Every time you add more people, it costs more money. So your expenses just get higher, the bigger you get. We used to have a spreadsheet. Our community manager had like a spreadsheet to like manually track like our Nopamigas or like anyone that was, you know, a brand ambassador to check, did they post? Did they bring in money? And now we are able to pay for a platform, like a software. It's really expensive. It's like $1,300 a month for this, you know, software that again, gets more expensive, the more ambassadors you add to it. And so we're able to pay for that so that it's managed automatically. So a physical person does not have to go check 30 people's Instagrams to see like, did they post about us? Right. And then ads, I'm a huge fan of paid ads. We are now able to do them across more channels. And so like that has changed. I've always advertised since day zero. That's how I first got people on my email list. So now we're able to do Google ads as well as LinkedIn ads, as well as now we're going to start doing YouTube ads and then monitoring those channels. Someone has to monitor it to see like what's performing. So it's not a set it and forget it in any of the things. And I think part of the investment is also being able to hire help because you can't do it all by yourself. So that's the thing, right, is... In the beginning, when you are just like a team of one or of two, hiring someone to help you like five hours a week, you know what I mean? Like start small. That's how I started, right? Sam was our marketing manager. She started as a freelancer, literally five hours a week, and then it became 10 hours a week, and then it became 20 hours a week. And now, you know, she's a full-time W2 employee. We're going to start to do some advertising on like last mile trucks. So that's a new thing that we've never done before that we can do only because now we have investment. We have a, a more robust budget. And now more in-store activations, because I do believe that in-person is like word of mouth is still the king. So now that we have more employees, we can do those in-store activations. Again, like the investment helps you hire people to help you, you know, so it's also about that. So when hiring, what are your favorite questions to ask at an interview and how are you basing your hiring? Yeah, so that's a great question that I think people don't talk about enough is hiring. But I first want to go back because you said something that made me want to ask a question to you, or you indicated that it's challenging for you to delegate. And so my question is, can you actually define what is the challenge? Is it the letting go part? Is it that you don't have time to explain to people? Is it that you don't trust people to do it as good as you? Like where, identify what is the actual challenge and pretend like that money is not an object. Pretend like you have money to hire people right now and like they're ready to help you. What is the challenge? I think it's the time. Okay. A lot of the time it is the time and I'll be working many, many hours trying to do those minuscule tasks mm -hmm. that I should not be doing. And then the CEO things I can't always do. And so now I plan on hiring a virtual assistant mm -hmm. to help with those admin tasks. And then finally being able to let go. And then I think a little bit also has to do with, I don't think somebody's going to do it as well as me <laughs> as well. Um, so and figuring out those systems, like getting set up, yeah. which is why I think I need a VA so much because I don't want to sit down and figure out how to use either Notion, Trello, Monday, all these platforms, figuring out which one's going to be the best one for me yeah. because I have all these ideas about how I can better my business and what I can do to better it every day. Yeah. But it's between, again, time, 
and money. Your question was if you didn't have to worry about the money portion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that's definitely always a factor for me. No, for sure. I just wanted to identify like, what is the challenge? Because some people is like, they're just controlling. They just don't want to give it up. Right. But what you're saying is that you don't have the time. You don't have the time to teach someone. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. So I think that that's, I want to say like, that's great, but obviously it's not great. But what I mean is that that is fixable, like that is resolvable. And it's best to resolve that now, because what happens is like the deeper you go, the further you go, you're only going to get more overwhelmed. And it's going to be harder to like carve out the time to explain to somebody, here's how you do X, Y, Z. I know you feel like you don't have time, but find the time somewhere, like carve out an hour in your day to sit down and write an SOP. What is the SOP? What is the standard operating procedure for this, for X? Here's how you update the website. Here's how you ship an order. Here's how you respond to a customer complaint. Everything has to have an SOP and create an SOP library so that then when you do bring on help, you just point them to the doc. And that doc, by the way, should also have like some kind of like video component like Loom. You know, I use Screencastify. It's the same thing. Some kind of screen recording that allows you to show someone like here's where you click. Click here, open here, here's the password, et cetera, because that just speeds everything up instead of you having to explain it with just words. My SOP library is like, littered with videos of here's how you do XYZ. So in terms of hiring, when I'm hiring people, I am number one looking for a good person, meaning like I'm looking for someone with a moral compass. I'm looking for someone that has like integrity, like the resume comes second. So I think there's a lot of people with good resumes, like that is not enough. I want to hear people talk. So I will prepare some questions like asking them what they like to do on the weekends, asking them what they didn't like about their last job. And then really letting them talk. Because when you let people talk, they will tell you who they are. And that's really what I'm trying to get out of an interview is I'm really trying to understand, like, is this a good person? Do they care about other people? Do they care about their friends and their family? I'm really trying to understand if they are, number one, first and foremost, a good person, because most things can be taught. Like, I can teach you how to ship an Amazon order. I can teach you how to learn a software. I cannot teach you how to be a good person. I think that's a really great way to go about hiring. Thank you so much for bringing all your questions. I hope this was helpful for you. It was very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Hey, Cindy, welcome to the Novaleta podcast. So good to see you. Hey, Sandra. I am so happy to be here. I can't even tell you. As I just mentioned earlier to you, I'm in the middle of starting VC round, and I wanted to ask you how you negotiated the valuation of Novaleta And whether, I don't know if you want to talk a minute about valuations for your audience and that type of thing, but negotiating that valuation is one of the maybe trickiest things in a round. So that is a question. Yeah, I agree. It is one of the trickiest things in the round. And it was for me as well, because, you know, I would ask people the same question and their answer to me was the market will decide. And I was like, what does that mean? Who is the market exactly? And really what it comes down to is the person that's writing you the check is the person that is ultimately deciding the valuation, right? You can come back and counter and you can defend your valuation based off of your projections, based off of your understanding of your category and the market and the direction of trends, et cetera. But ultimately, like the person that's writing the check It's no different than like, how do we know that a Picasso is worth what it's worth? It's because someone paid X amount of dollars and now that's what it's worth, (laughs) you know? So it's Mm -hmm. a similar thing that's very tricky. And it was one of my hardest challenges when I was raising as well. I actually ended up working with like a third party company that does valuations. Even though every Mm -hmm. VC I talked to, they were like, you don't need to do that. Don't waste your money. 
my lawyer mm-hmm. at the time was like, it's going to be for your peace of mind, for you to, you know, understand and be able to defend with more confidence. So I did. It wasn't that expensive, but in the end, it wasn't super valuable. I'm not sure that I would go back and do it again. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it's like fundraising is like you need to know the landscape better than anybody so that you can defend your valuation. Like the beverage category mm-hmm. is growing X over X. Here's like the market opportunity. Here's the competitive landscape. Here's the white space opportunity and why we're going to fill it or why we are filling it, et cetera. And so that confidence and showing people that I think is how you can defend, you know, and then showing them your roadmap of what's the growth plan here. What does your company look like next year, three years, five years, et cetera. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky. (laughs) Tricky is the answer. Looking at also market comps, Cindy, is important. Like your competitors, what are their valuations and what are their sales channels and where are you, where do you sit in the landscape? Because everything is relative. But how do you find a competitor's valuation? I think that's, it's a very hidden amount. It's a hidden subject. It is. So you might not find your competitor's valuations, but you might find category competitors who have exited to show like, here's what this brand did. They sold, you know, they were in these many channels. This was their revenue and they sold. And some of that data is public. Like you can find it on Crunchbase or whatever. Yes. No. Yeah, we've done that. But it is challenging. Your answer is really helpful. And it's just a negotiation, basically. It's a little arm wrestling plan. It's absolutely arm wrestling. And the more data you can come with, the more you will feel confident defending your valuation. Mm -hmm. That's good. A good answer. (laughs) Thanks. Um, My questions are a little bit kind of all over the place. I'll try to stick to no Polera first. (laughs) I was listening to your other podcasts and, you know, just researching into what you've already talked about. And you had already answered most of the questions that I originally thought of, Mm -hmm. but you were talking in recently about online and retail with no Polera and Mm -hmm. what the percentage is between the two. And I wondered if you could talk about the growth in those two channels. And if you see online surpassing retail or retail surpassing online? Or do you think Mm -hmm. they'll both stay in relationship to each other as you grow the company? And second part of the question, sorry, Mm -hmm. is do you prefer online because you don't have the distributor costs? So let me answer the first part of the question, which is right now we are like pretty much split, like 50-50 wholesale online. Mm. But that's also a little misleading because even some of our brick and mortar retailers we sell more online on their platforms. Do you know what I mean? Like we're technically in a brick and mortar, technically wholesale, but it's still Nordstrom.com or CredoBeauty.com. You know, so I think that that's important to note. And I think it really depends on your type of product because for example, if you sold furniture, I would say, you know, (laughs) that's a bad example, but you know, something that's very Mm -hmm. heavy to ship. You might not want Mm -hmm. it to be online only. You make a beverage Mm -hmm that that's pretty heavy to ship, you know, for your own warehouse to do it. And it's easier for someone to just go buy it at a store, maybe. But then to your point about the distributor cost, then you're taking the hit with the distributor cost. The distinction I want to make here is that you are in the CPG, you're in the grocery channel where you have to work with distributors. And in beauty, we don't. So there are no distributors in my category. There are if I was going to sell to grocery, but in beauty retail, like Sephora, Ulta, Nordstrom, we don't work with distributors. We sell direct. Lucky you. Lucky us, but our retailers take a higher margin. Of course they do. Yeah. You know, so, so I just want to make that distinction because for anyone that's listening, who is a food and beverage brand selling to grocery, you will Mm -hmm. have that distributor margin to contend with. For anyone that's a beauty brand selling into beauty retailers, we don't work with distributors to sell direct. Yeah. 
So you were asking, do I prefer one or the other? Uh It really remains to be seen what the future will hold, because as we expand into like a national retailer, it might flip to being more wholesale and less D2C. Right now, it's this way because we have a lot of boutiques, you know, we have our strong online sales, but we're also not like in Ulta or Sephora yet. And so that Mm -hmm. might shift the landscape. Ultimately, I think that it's about just being on a channel. It's just about having different sales channels available to you because that way you just have different revenue streams and they're all going to have different margins and they're all going to cost money to support. I think that's one important thing to distinguish that just because you're selling from your website doesn't mean that it's better or cheaper. It's still expensive to acquire customers, to retain them, et cetera. So I am a strong believer in omni-channel. So I think that that's the thing, that you're not relying on one major retailer. What if Costco goes out of business? Now what? You know, kind of thing. So when you did your projections, did you project online sales versus retail sales over the next, like, for instance, three years? Yes. And you, so you saw that difference or what would happen? Yes. And I think the beauty of having a financial model where the margins are built in there is that you can see that we have to sell a lot more units wholesale to make the same amount of money than if we sell it directly on our website. And that's really good to be able to actually see that with your own eyes on your Mm -hmm. financial model. And we also have the assumption built in that there will be a national retail partner either this year or next year. Mm -hmm. And so that changes. Again, it's a forecast, meaning like it's not true. You're forecasting. You're doing the best that you can based off of your assumptions and based off of where you think you're going to go. And then you adjust as you go. There's like the forecast Mm -hmm. and then there's the actuals as it's happening in real time. You know, in your case, like, let's say you were going to get into Costco. I'm just going to make that up. How many Costco's? So Mm -hmm. that also, that's part of the assumptions, like how many doors? And then what is the velocity, you know, that you're anticipating? And so I think it's good to have just different scenarios. Like we have different scenarios. We have like with a national retailer, without a national retailer, so that we can see what does that look like at the end of the year? Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks. That was a great answer. You know, I'm so happy that we connected. And when we did early on in 2020, before you launched, you said you launched in November. And I think I took Mm -hmm. your distro talk in October, September. Mm -hmm. But just to see the strategy behind the launch and how your experience of working with Van Leeuwen and with your sales and your email templates and everything that I have used, which has Mm -hmm. helped me, you know, Derek, my co-founder and now son-in-law, we always talk about what would Sandra do? Oh. You know, would Sandra do this or Sandra did it? So that means be good for us. It's very interesting to see that trajectory that you've gone down and how you've done it. So I just, you know, I'm always studying your brand, other brands, your message, your podcast, and you're putting that information out there without any kind of competitiveness or fear of competition because helping everybody, it doesn't seem intuitive, but it really is helping our own brands when we're helping other brands that are in the same space even it just is yeah absolutely and you know giving people information not everyone wants to do the work cindy you know (sighs) like you can even tell people like here's the path and not everyone wants to go down the path yeah so the information is also for people to decide do they want to go down this path Mm -hmm. you know once you lay it out like here's what's ahead of you like is this the life you want and it's not for everybody Mm -hmm. and so i think giving people the information is also helping people make those decisions quicker so that they don't waste time and money. Yeah. Well, Cindy, it was so great to connect with you. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for inviting me. I was was very grateful to be invited. Thank you so much. Yes. 
Thank you for being here with us. Remember to leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening from. Spread the word so we can impact and grow the community. If you are an entrepreneur looking for more Real Talk and resources, you can join my entrepreneurial newsletter from my personal website, sandralilavelasquez.com. But also visit nopalera.co to pick up your favorite self-care items for yourself and your loved ones. Join the Nopaleta mailing list to be the first to hear about new products, exclusive promos. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at nopaleta.co. Stay resilient.